This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law, because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. As soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis because I have decided to winter there. Do everything you can to help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way and see that they have everything they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to live to provide for urgent needs and not to live unproductive lives. Everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Eric. Well, tonight's the last in our sermon series on, on Titus. If you've been with us for the whole journey, I don't know how you feel about that. It's been a challenging uh, challenging to preach because it's all on leadership and it feels like the spotlight has been on me as a leader. Uh, challenging to think about what it means to learn from different generations. Uh, but most challenging for me has been this whole concept of grace. Now, am I bathing in grace? Am I overflowing with goodness because of the grace that's been shown me? Uh, and tonight we come to these strange little verses, but they are packed with rich treasures. So I'm going to pray for us as we come to our last sermon tonight. Let me pray. Father, we love you and we adore you. And Father, we want to be your children who listen well. We ask that you would clear our minds of any distractions. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, minds to understand, and wills that are longing to be conformed more and more into the likeness of Jesus. And we ask that for Jesus' sake. Amen. love this quote. It's on the screen. Uh, we live in a, a post-Christian world that is sick and tired of hearing from Christians. But who could argue with radical Christ-like love? That is true, isn't it? We, we live in a world that is fed up, exhausted by hearing from Christians, hearing what we think, our opinions on all this stuff. The world out there is not interested in what we think. But who could argue with radical Christ-like love? Who can argue when they see people, men and women who love Jesus, just behaving and acting in a Christ-like way? That is powerful. And the quote is from a lady called Rosaria Butterfield, who, great name, who, she was a, a leftist, lesbian, English academic. And she hated Jesus, she hated Christians, she hated the church, she wrote books against Christianity. Until one day, someone encouraged her to read the one book she'd never read, which is the Bible. And there she encountered Jesus. Not a set of theological truths, not a set of philosophical propositions, not a church, not an institution, but a person. She encountered a person who was 
full of compassion and kindness and love and mercy and grace, and his name was Jesus. And when she met Jesus, her life was radically transformed. And from grace flowed goodness. And she started to live this beautiful, good life. And she wrote a book. It's a very confronting book. It's called The the Gospel Comes with a House Key. And in this book, she, she says, if you really do love Jesus, well, start to live like Jesus. And she challenged the, the Christians to, to open their homes to strangers, to neighbors, to people in need. She challenges us to, to put our, our money where our mouth is. And, and if we believe in Jesus, to, to show that by the way that we live. And she challenges us to, to do the long haul with people. Don't flip from one friend to another, but, but get involved in each other's lives. Be there for the long haul. Show up. Turn up. Be present. Be prayerful. She challenged us to do good. And in many ways, Rosario Butterfield is living the, the profitable and productive life. There, there are two words used in Titus 3, the profitable life and the productive life. On the screen is Titus 3, verse 8. Those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. So those who have trusted in God, he's talking about Christians. He's not talking about random good people. He's saying, if you have experienced the grace of God, because you're saved by grace, not by your works. But if you're saved by grace, then you should do good works. You should live a good life. And living the good life, doing good deeds, is a profitable life. An excellent way to live. Uh, 3 verse 14, our people, that is people marked by grace, must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. So if you're living a life devoted to doing good, you are living a productive life and a profitable life. It's pretty straightforward. If you want to live a profitable and productive life, well, live a good life. Live a life that's kind and caring, noticing someone in need, cooking that meal, giving that lift. It's living a selfless life, giving someone your precious commodity called time and your listening ear, offering financial support, offering a place to stay, praying with someone, giving time to serve at church, in, in kids' church, alpha, aged care. That is doing good. And church, that is the most profitable and productive way you can spend your time. As a pastor, I do heaps of funerals. I did a great one this week for a 98-year-old who swam a kilometer per day until he was 95. That's a pretty good way to live. But let me tell you, at, at, at your funeral. When you die at your funeral, you do not want people to talk about whether you reached your KPIs at work or not. You don't want people to talk about whether you were an, an add value member to a team. We don't want people to talk about whether you use Kanban boards for productivity or getting things done. You don't want people to talk about whether you climb the career ladder or the social ladder or the housing ladder. Who cares what schools your kids went to? 
Who cares whether you've got your, your brand new house with a new pool with polished floorboards? At your funeral, what you want people to talk about it is you and your character, that you were good and you were kind and you loved God and you loved people. You want people to talk about how you spent your days doing good, pouring yourself out for Jesus and for other people. Isn't that what you want to say, people to say about you? He lived a profitable life and a productive life because he loved God and loved people. That is Titus chapter 3. Doing good. Doing good for the sake of God and people. So I'll see him again tonight. I was thinking this week church would be so, so, so much easier if it wasn't for people. It'd be great, wouldn't it, if you just got to preach and there was no people here? Because some people, you know, are, are difficult to love and some people are difficult to help. So, but you can't do good in the vacuum. You need people to do good too. But not every person wants you to do good to them. And so Paul starts off in this final verses thinking about the negative, the people that it's hard to do good to. And our first point is this, beware of the no-gooders. Beware of the no-gooders. If you want to live a productive and profitable life, watch out for people. Watch out for people who are not do-gooders but no-gooders. Don't waste your time with these kind of people. And Paul identifies two groups of people, the distractors and the divisive people. People who distract you from doing good and people who want to divide the church. Let's start with the distractors in verse 9. He says, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, arguments and quarrels about the law because... These are unprofitable and they're useless. They, they are, they're a waste of time. They're a waste of energy. They're, they're useless because nobody gets saved and God's church is not growing. So avoid these distractors where there's foolish controversies. The word for foolish there is the word moron. The moronic controversies, all the things that don't really matter, the endless debates in church, the endless discussions in church over disputable matters that don't really matter. Avoid genealogies, always talking about your ancestral lines. Avoid arguments, the squabbling over a particular word or writing an article to defend a position on a grey area of scripture. What a waste of time. Avoid quarrels about the law. These people are obviously Jewish and debating issues like food laws and washing rituals or circumcision. We don't talk about that. But some Christians just love to debate and discuss, and fight, and quabble over things, and it's just a waste of time. We spend hours debating baptism. Is it full immersion, or is it sprinkling? Is it adult? Is it infant? Who really cares? We spend hours debating communion, common cup, or individual cup. Who cares? Women to preach or not to preach, that is the question. We discuss ethical issues ad infinitum. We fight over church structures and church politics, what songs we should sing, what songs we shouldn't sing, what should the minister wear, what should he not wear. It's just distracting because it's stopping us from doing good and doing gospel work. It's useless. It's like rain hitting a tin roof. It makes lots of noise, but doesn't achieve very much. 
But the word for unprofitable there in verse 9, it means that no one's getting saved. No one's being edified. God's church is not being built up. The kingdom is not growing because Christians are spending all these time discussing and debating and just being disruptive. And so Paul said in verse 9, avoid. The word there is shun. I know that's not a positive word. Shun these people. Don't give them your energy. Don't give them your time. Just walk away from them because they're distracting. Now, 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 Titus is written to pastors, actually. The, the first application is to pastors, to Titus. Uh, it does sadden me, and, I, and I, I am not, hear this clearly, I am not talking about our pastors here at the Viz Church. But it does sadden me how often pastors in God's church can get distracted from doing the, the, the primary work. We've been set apart to what? To preach the word in season and out of season, to be patient, to be gentle, to, to shepherd the flock, to care for the sick, to care for the dying, to, to, to evangelize the lost. That's our job. And yet, many pastors get distracted reading endless articles and blogs on all these secondary issues. And they're not caring for the sick and for the dying. They're just huddling together, having hours and hours and hours of coffee catch-ups. And they're, they're reading articles on the latest theological fads. They're going to yet another conference on church planting or writing yet another strategy paper. And what is the point? The lost are perishing. Christians need to be edified. And we're just losing the plot. It just saddens me. The hours and hours are wasted that could be spent discipling the flock, doing one-to-ones, doing good deeds, but we're just fighting over secondary issues. Not just the pastors, it's Christians who we love to debate and ponder and pontificate. Do you ever stop and think how many hours of your life you have wasted in pointless discussion with other Christians? So beware of distractions. They're no good. Beware of divisions. The people in church who love to stir up trouble. And that is verse 10 and 11. He says, warn a divisive person once. And then warn him a second time. And after that, have nothing to do with them. So he's talking about people here who their goal in life is to destroy unity. Their, their purpose in life is to come into a church and deliberately cause trouble. Because, you know, when God saves us, he saves us into a church, and he says that we are united, we are one in Christ. And so he brings us this beautiful unity when there should be disunity, and he, he brings us together as one family. There's this unity that we're called to guard and to keep. Now, he's not saying that we won't disagree with each other. Of course we disagree sometimes. That's okay. We're not a cult. But when you disagree with someone, you do that gently and lovingly. He's not talking about that. He's talking about people who are deliberately troublesome, and they want to fight and tear down and bring trouble to the church. And you know them. No matter what the issue is, they've got an opinion, a strong opinion. And they gather people and they read books and they undermine leadership and the unsettled people and there's fighting and there's factions and it's so ugly. And when you see it, verse 10, you, you warn that divisive person. Uh, the word for warn there is not a harsh word, it's not judgmental, it's actually a, a gentle word, it's the word admonish. 
And it's the word of a, of a father who, who sits with their child and gently and lovingly says, this is not good. You're going the wrong way. Or, or a parent who sits with a, a teenager and says, that is, that's a bad choice. Think about the, the implications of the direction you're going in. That's the word warn there. It's a, it's a gentle word. It's a loving word. It's a correcting word. It's getting them back off the right track onto the right track. Now, after 25 years of ministry, I've discovered that most people are not deliberately divisive. They don't go out to be divisive. It's just that they come from different church backgrounds where they do things differently. They come here and it's all a bit different. That's okay. We sit down and we say, no, this is where we do things. And they say, oh, yeah, I get that now. Not talking about that. He's talking about the people who are deliberately divisive. Their the goal in life is not to talk but to fight. They don't want to listen. They want to argue. And with these people, you warn them once and then warn them a second time. There was a man here at our church a long time ago who had to sit down and just talk too gently and say, look, you're being divisive. And his response was, I don't care. You can't tell me what to do. It's a free society. I say, well, I want to, what I want to say, you can't stop me. And I said, well, you're causing trouble in church. Yeah, I know. Yep, I'm right, you're wrong. Now, what do you do with that? What do you do with that? You warn them once. You warn them the second time. And then what did it say, verse 10? And then you have nothing to do with them. Don't waste your time with them. Don't give them your airtime or your energy because you can be sure that such people are warped, verse 11. That means that they can't see things clearly. They are sinful because it's not about Christ. It's about them and they're self-condemned. You're not condemning them. They're condemning themselves. Now, God can change people in his timing. And if you're thinking, Paul, that is so unloving, that's so unlike Christ. No, it's not. It's actually unloving not to warn them. It's unloving to allow people into a church that are leading people astray and causing an unsettlement in God's church. It's unloving to allow people to be hurt and harmed by wrong teachers or by divisive people. And it's unloving to allow this divisive person to go uncorrected because your goal is to restore them and to heal them and see them walking closely with Christ. So in church, we need to warn people for their good and for God's glory. Is that difficult? Of course it is. Is it worth it every time? Because no gooders will stop you from doing good. No gooders will suck all the energy out of you, all your time, into debating and discussing meaningless topics when you could be out there speaking and shining Jesus. So that's the negative. Beware of the no-gooder. Let's go positive. Be known as a do-gooder. Be known as a do-gooder. That, that's the big idea of Titus, isn't it? Just, just come with me. Uh, 2 verse 14. A people eager to do what is good. Eager to do what is good. Desperate to do good. 3 verse 1. Be ready to do what's good. They are expectant for the opportunity to do good. 3 verse 8. Be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. They're careful. They are planned. They're diligent. Or our key verse tonight, 3 verse 14, our people must learn to devote themselves 
to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. I love that word, learn. We must learn to do good. We learn because doing good doesn't come naturally to most of us. Uh, naturally, let's be honest, naturally we do good if it's good for us. We do good if it suits my schedule. We do good if I like the person. I do good if it fits into what I want to do. Naturally, I'm happy to do good if it benefits me. But we need the Spirit to come in and to teach us so we learn a different mindset, a sacrificial mindset of a do-gooder. So let's get really practical. What would it be like for you to be a do-gooder? Here's your scenarios. You could choose to watch that Netflix movie or you could choose to cook a meal for people in need. You could choose to get an early night. That's good. Or that person in your life who is really struggling, you could pick up the phone and have a one-hour conversation with them. You could choose to go for a run. That's a good thing to do. Or you could choose to write a letter to a mission partner to encourage them. You could choose to have Sunday brunch with your friends every single Sunday. Or you could choose to sacrifice your time to lead a kids' church. You could choose to spend your tax return on yourself or to give it away to other people. Uh, when that new person moves into your unit block, you could choose to just keep your head down, or you, or you could choose to, I don't know, bake some cookies and go around and introduce yourself and say, welcome to the neighborhood. A new person comes to church, and as you're talking to them, you, you discover there's needs there. You could choose to say, well, the church can do that, or you could choose to go out and buy them some groceries or say, need, need, need a car to use, or you need a, a, a fridge to use. That's what it means to do good. It's to have this mindset that life is not about me. Your life is not your own anymore. It belongs to Jesus. And if it belongs to Jesus, it's all about loving God and loving people. That's a do-gooder. You want to do good. You long to do good. You seek every opportunity to do good. It's like driving on a freeway. Most of the time when we drive on the freeway, we're... We're just in the zone, we're on cruise control and the, the music's blaring out and we're nice and relaxed and because everyone drives automatic, so you're just steering this thing and you're just not focused until you want to change lanes. And when you want to change lanes, then you, you snap into focus and, and you're looking over your shoulder and you're checking your mirrors, is it safe, where's the opportunities now, I'm going to go now. Now living a life as a do-good is, is living not in cruise control. Living the life of a do-good is, is to go through every murder, every day, looking for opportunities, spotting opportunities. I could do good there. I could do good there. I could do good there. And let me tell you, when you live with that mindset, it's such a beautiful way to live. Is it tiring? Of course it is. Is it beneficial? You bet it is. So be known as a do-gooder. That is the profitable and productive way to live. I love verses 12 to 14 because it's not just a list of random names. These are, these are real people with real needs that Paul did life with and did ministry with. And when it comes to doing good in church, there, there are 
two main avenues. You can be a, a spiritual do-gooder and a material do-gooder. There's spiritual encouragement to give and there's material needs to meet. Verse 12, as soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis because I've decided to winter there. Now, now Paul isn't just telling us his holiday plans. He, he's saying, Titus, please come to me. Titus, I need you. Titus, please leave Crete and come to join me at Nicopolis. I've decided to winter there. Let's spend some time together. And I don't think he's saying, let's drink coffee and watch Netflix. I think he's saying, Titus, let, let's encourage each other spiritually. Let's spend some time together and we can read the Bible together and we can pray together and we can encourage each other and we can keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Let's spur each other on so we can keep going in ministry because it is tough. Titus, Titus, I need you spiritually. But what I love is that he's not just thinking about himself and his spiritual needs, he's thinking about the church in Crete. Because if Titus leaves the church in Crete, who's going to pastor them? And so he sends Artemis or Tychicus to them. We know nothing about Artemis, but Tychicus from Colossians 4 is a, a dear brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant. So he sends wise, godly men of good character to provide the spiritual needs for this church. Can I say, friends, every single person in this room tonight needs a faithful friend who will encourage them spiritually. We all do. You need someone in your life who will pick up the phone to you and say, how are you doing spiritually? I've got this word for you. How can I pray for you? Let's do life together. You need that. I need that. And it's not that we need it. We can be that spiritual friend to somebody else. We can meet the spiritual needs of somebody else in your life. And I love verse 12 when Paul says, do your best to come to me. I just wonder whether God has put someone in your heart who is calling out to you tonight saying, I need you. I need you right now. Please, I'm struggling spiritually. I feel isolated. I feel alone. Maybe there's someone in your life who has reached out to you and you just ignored them. Now, spiritually, can you just give to people? Spiritually, can you encourage somebody? Spur them on? Is that costly? Of course it is. Is it beneficial? You bet it is. Be a spiritual do-gooder. But it's not just spiritual needs, it's material needs. Verse 14 is quite confronting. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to, in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. Urgent needs, practical needs, physical needs, material needs. Because of these two blokes that we skipped over in verse 13. One's called Zenus, he's a lawyer. One's called Apollos, he's a Christian minister. And these two blokes are, are bringing the letter to Crete. But they've got nothing. They need a place to stay, they need food, they need money, they need provisions, they need a clothes to wear, and that is not going to come out of the church budget. The church in Crete does not have a, a budget item line saying, meeting the needs of other Christians. And Paul is saying to the Christians in Crete, it's your job to make sure that these men 
have everything they need, verse 13. They have everything they need spiritually, emotionally, relationally, materially. So come on, church. You make sure that these men have a roof over their head. Come on, church. You make sure they have food in their belly. Come on, church. Make sure they have their medical bills paid for. Come on, church. Make sure they have a friend to meet with and transport and clothes and water because each of you can meet a need. And that's where the rubber hits the road, isn't it? That we can talk about doing good and we can write a church paper on doing good and you can have all the intention of doing good. You can put in your calendar, invite this person over for dinner. But if you don't act on it, it's all just talk. And you can pray for people. And praying is, is the most wonderful thing you can do. But, but please don't just pray and ignore their material needs. There are people in our church family who are struggling to pay their rent and struggling to pay their mortgage. There are people in our church family who are struggling to put food on their table week in, week out as these, these, these cost of living rises. There are people in our church family who are struggling for clothing. And most of us here have a wardrobe stuffed with clothes that we're never going to wear and a pantry full of food that we're not going to eat. And some of us here have more ready cash than we know what to do with. I often email people at our church asking if they could put someone up for a night or a week or a month because I know they've got spare rooms. And I might email 30 people in church. And the most common response is silence. Because somebody else can do that, can't they? Uh, why am I so passionate about this? I'm passionate about it because I have modeled to me from the moment I became a Christian that if, you, if you've understood the grace of God, it overflows to goodness. After I became a Christian in Oxford 32 years ago, 33 years ago, I, I needed someone to stay. And this beautiful Christian couple at my church invited me to live in their home rent-free for four months and I enjoyed a Christian community for the first time in my life. That is doing good. I was going to New Zealand to do a postdoc and I wrote to a church in New Zealand and say, I'd like to come and join your church. And they wrote back to me, pen and paper days, this is 1994. Uh, they wrote back to me saying, we'd love you to join our church and, and do you need to come and, do you need somewhere to live? We'd love to invite you to come and live in the rectory. That is doing good. I, I could recount countless stories of me enjoying, enjoying meals with strangers, Christmas with strangers, being invited to people's homes, being provided for random gifts that were given to me because these people had understood grace. Because when you've grasped grace, you just want to do good and do good and do good. Not because you have to, because you long to. You long to. Because you're so gripped by the grace of Jesus Christ, you just want to let that overflow from you to bless other people. So church, we're called to be known as do-gooders. Is that exhausting? Of course it is. Are oh, there days where I don't want to do good? Of course there is. But I tell you this, every time you do it, you are blessed. It's not just about blessing other people. It's not just about honoring God. It's actually that you are blessed. Because as you pour yourself out to serve others and give to others and do good to others, you encounter and experience 
God in a whole new way, a whole new dimension. So friends, be known as do-gooders. Because as we do that, people see Christ in us. And the love of Jesus flows from us. Because from grace flows goodness. Verse 15, grace be with you all. Please don't leave here tonight feeling guilty. Please don't leave here tonight feeling you must do, 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 do. Leave here tonight thinking, I must know Jesus better. I must understand grace better. I must overflow with the grace of God because when I do that, then good deeds deeds will just flow out of me. So doing good, it is the most profitable and productive way to spend your time. Because Rosario Butterfield is right. Our world is sick and tired of hearing from Christians. But who could argue with radical Christ-like love? Let me pray. I'm going to give you a moment now to invite the Spirit to impress on your heart and your mind somebody in your life, somebody in your world right now who you can do good to, a spiritual encouragement to give, a practical need to meet. So we invite you, Spirit of God, to give us that mindset where we take every opportunity to do good. We ask that for Jesus' sake.